0: Everybody knows that yields are at historic lows and everybody's looking for investment income. Middle market lending is often part of that conversation. The question is, is it a good solution for you? We're joined by Tim Warwick of Principal Global Investors to talk about this asset class today. Tim, welcome.
1: Thank you, Stuart. It's great to be with you here today and look forward to our discussion.
0: Thank you very much. My name is Stuart Foley. This is the Insurance AUM Journal podcast. Tim off the bat, what is middle market lending? Can you define it sort of the market, what that means and kind of how how you guys come at it?
1: Yeah, from a broad perspective, middle market lending is lending to those companies that are uh, typically smaller in size than the large broadly syndicated market. So, middle market typically is defined as either 500 million or less in revenues or 200 million in EBITDA or less. So, pretty significantly sized companies, if you think of it from that perspective, the way we think of it and where we think there's even more value is looking at the core middle market or even the lower middle market. And we consider core middle market, those companies with around 50 million in EBITDA and lower middle market, 5 million to 25 million in EBITDA. So those companies are oftentimes companies experiencing significant growth, benefiting from secular changes in the economy and across their industries. So really great opportunities oftentimes.
0: Principal's managing $8 billion of private credit. I think it would be helpful for our audience to understand kind of the history of the platform and how the investment approach has been formed over time.
1: Yes, our Principal Alternative Credit is part of Principal Global Investors and Principal Alternative Credit oversees all of the private credit asset management for the organization and uh, that has grown to over $8 billion. That started over 50 years ago, so well before my time and I had the pleasure of beginning my career with principal in the 90s, and one of, was a uh, private credit analyst as well as covering public credits at that time. So we've been very familiar with being a lead lender in those situations, leading the negotiation with borrowers, leading the documentation process, leading the workouts when there are workouts potentially. So we've always seen value in private credit. As we got later on, more recently, I should say, in uh, you know, just 2018-19, It was very clear there was tremendous value in the middle market private credit space, so middle market high yield. And we made the determination as an organization that we really wanted to move more considerably, take our credit culture, credit heritage, credit expertise to that part of the market in addition to the more traditional private placement market. So that's what we did. In 2019, I began setting up a team. Principal Life's general account saw it as a tremendous opportunity to allocate, to increase allocation to drive the efficient frontier, to drive yield relative to risk that this sector offers. And so by the middle of 2020, we had the team set up, in part, transitioning over some of our key analysts, our head of credit research, in addition to bringing in some key outside talent, including our head of underwriting. So we did our first loan in the middle market high yield space in July of 2020. And now we're up over 24 loans in the uh, platform and uh, focusing again on that lower and core middle market. So to explain a little bit more about that, again, that's, we focus on 5 to $50 million EBITDA sized companies. We think there's really strong value there. It's less exploited or less competitive. There's definitely a number of firms focusing in that area, but not like what you see in the public broadly syndicated, not even like what you see in the true middle market. We talked about those larger transactions that are more and more like broadly syndicated as well. So we're seeing better pricing, better terms and covenants, true maintenance covenants, true just overall value, cheapness relative to what we're seeing in the upper middle markets. We think a core competency, though, is to be able to originate there. So we focus on both sponsored and non-sponsored transactions to get that diversity, to get that top of the funnel as wide as we can to see as many opportunities as we can. And then we also believe in portfolio construction is very, very significant. So we're focused on specific industries, gaining exposure to those industries, avoiding certain industries that tend to have more default characteristics or more operating leverage, higher cyclicality instead of focusing on those that will, uh, we expect drive greater performance over time. And if you look at the public market, those industries, those more heavy cyclical industries are definitely embedded in that market, less so in the middle market for that matter. The last point I'll make is we really believe transparency, our approach transparency is essential. And so we have very clear ratings. We have, just like you see in the public rating agencies, we rate every loan. So B plus, double B minus. We also have quantitative tools that we utilize to kind of challenge our thoughts and ensure that we're not having unintended bias. So we have a Moody's risk calc, we have principal credit IQ that kick out quantitative ratings as well that might challenge our point of view. And we also have ESG ratings, which we know is important and definitely important in evaluating the opportunity and risk. So we score every loan from an ESG perspective on a scale of one to 10. Importantly, engage with the borrower, with the sponsor to uh, drive important improvements over time in that company's profile, hence reducing the risk of still getting paid very handsomely as we enter into those transactions with an 8% coupon, but then reduce and mitigate the risk through time.
0: It seems that the COVID-19 pandemic has had an impact on nearly every asset class. How has the dynamics with the middle market direct lending changed over the years, and particularly since this COVID crisis?
1: Yeah, it's been a really interesting journey and something that really began in earnest post global financial crisis. So, we saw non bank lenders just come onto the scene more assertively back uh, post global financial crisis as banks' regulatory environment increased and in their level of uh, an ability to hold more levered assets or loans was constrained. So, that void was definitely met by different non bank lenders. So, we've seen that change over time and we've seen in those terms banks have gone from Probably 2010, were about 80% of the true middle market. Today, they're less than 20% of the middle market because of that change in the overall mix of middle market lending, shifting over to more direct lenders. In addition, we've also seen from the other side, more and more middle market lending and borrowers wanting to come into the private space rather than be in the broadly syndicated space. So we've seen borrowers and sponsors choose to have that certainty of financing, choose to have that relationship they can have with the lender choose to be able to grow the business and the platform of that lender rather than rely on the public market, which can be a little bit more volatile and depending on systemic and economic risks and just market uh, movements and liquidity as well. So if you look at from 2015 to 2020, the syndicated market fell from about, well, I'll shift it around the other way. The volume of direct lending has increased from about 0.7 times that of the syndicated market to over two times the level of the syndicated market, in the middle market space. So we've seen great growth from, you know, taking share from the banks, also taking share from the public markets or the capital markets groups out there that are trying to have middle market companies come to the public space. Another couple things that I've mentioned is that the growth of the asset class has been tremendous. So we've seen tremendous flows into the private equity space. Private equity sponsors have realized considerable capital and probably have over 600 billion of dry powder to put to use. Considerable dry powder to look for M&A and LBO opportunities. In addition, uh, the number of private equity firms has grown to over 700 here in North America. So if you look at that compared to where we're at in direct lending, there's approximately 100 different direct lending firms in North America that are operating and reputable. And uh, there's probably 100 billion to 150 billion of dry powder. So the supply-demand dynamics look pretty favorable for lenders to be able to come alongside with those borrowers, especially when you consider it The sponsors are contributing a lot of equity capital. Most of these deals have over half of the capital contributed to in the form of equity. So the loan-to-value is less than 50% most often. What we have seen is a continued expansion in enterprise value, just like you've seen in the public market, but that's in part because we're financing more and more technology and software, healthcare, and business services that I believe are justified to have higher valuation. But again, we've seen the loan-to-value stay pretty reasonable, well under 50%, even with the advent unit tranche which just means taking a first lien and attaching a sliver of mezzanine debt to that effectively to have one larger first lien unit tranche so even with that we're still seeing attractive leverage on average over 50 percent and and still attractive pricing that's been really relatively stable though that has come down a little bit over the last few quarters and so post-covid meaning speaking of the last few quarters post-covid specifically we did see during the COVID period you know, increase in portfolio monitoring by those managers that had a number of portfolio holdings. So some of the workouts that were pending during that time with the uncertainty around COVID, we didn't have that situation. We were ramping up the platform. So we had the benefit of looking and be able to underwrite through that COVID environment. So we had that going for us. In addition, we saw very favorable pricing, very favorable covenants and terms. We saw some secondary trading as well. So we're able to buy some assets at three or four points discounted to the original OI, original issue discount or to par, so some good opportunities. But the market snapped back. You know, we're back to almost uh, pre-COVID levels as far as how the market's behaving now. Still reasonably strong terms, reasonably strong covenants, and still getting an exceptional risk premium of almost 300 basis points relative to public alternatives.
0: And geographically, Tim, when you think about opportunities in North America, for example versus what's available in Europe and other places. How do those opportunities compare in your eyes?
1: Yeah, we're, we're uh, very focused on North America. We think there's great value in North America, very diverse. You know, We're looking at almost at a run rate right now, 750 loans a year on that kind of run rate. And there's well over 1,500 loans available that are being done in the middle market space. So that market in the North America is at least five times, some would measure closer to 10 times larger than Europe. And uh, North America is really, if you look at data, their indices go back to 2004. So even before global financial crisis, this middle market space was developing in North America. That's more recent in Europe, which that can create numerous opportunities. We think there's uh, benefits for investors to consider both Europe and North America originated loans and opportunities. But specifically in uh, Europe, they're also taking the benefit of transitioning from banks to middle market direct lenders. So if you think back, just A few years ago, they would co-invest alongside with banks. And now just recent data that I saw with many of the banks in Europe, focusing more on the loans they're making as a part of the COVID relief effort. They're not focused quite as much on middle market and developing the middle market lending avenue. So middle market direct lenders are up to approximately 80% of the lending in Europe as well. So very similar to what we're seeing in North America. The one thing I would say is the markets are at different stages in Europe. So the UK is definitely advanced and more like where we're at in North America. France and Germany are probably the next two most developed markets and the Nordic region and Benelux regions are now expanding as well. So those opportunities will be there. There's definitely large lenders already over there. One of the very largest funds is a European only fund. So they're being penetrated. And if you look at the valuations, the covenants, all of that, they are not that different than what we see in the U.S. and North America very similar. And in fact, the industry of of focus are very similar as well. So healthcare, technology, business services. So a lot of complementary things, a lot of similar things, but something that uh, any investor should consider both avenues for a, a fully diversified portfolio.
0: And so when I'm looking for deals, I mean, what's the source of deal flow for middle market direct lending? And in your mind, what's the best approach? The best approach is to have as wide a funnel at the top of that funnel
1: as possible to be able to see as many deals as you can see. And, and we hire originators that were formerly underwriters. So they're underwriting, their screening, they know what we're looking for our credit box and our credit screening, what industries we're looking at to be intentional about getting the, you know, only those industries we want exposure to. But it's still good to have a pulse for what's going on in the broad market and then be able to be very, very, very selective as we are in what ultimately we get to close. So our close rate is less than 5%, and I'll get into that a little more detail in a moment. But So we think it's appropriate and uh, beneficial to see deals from sponsors or private equity sponsors. We also think it's appropriate to see deals from non-sponsored relationships and opportunities. And then we also think it's appropriate to work with other lenders in small clubs. It's not the broadly syndicated. We're working with maybe one or two lenders as all. It's a small club, but we're still controlling the deal. We know the terms and conditions. We very much believe in the acumen of the other lender as well and how we align with them. But again, that gives us a, a view of a broad sourcing of deals that have an ability to be very discerning, as I mentioned earlier. So on the sponsored side, there's tremendous benefit. And some lenders will say we're only going to do sponsored transactions. We're not going to look at non sponsored at all. And some of the reasons for that is those sponsored transactions. You have really, really good sponsors out there that have proven track records.
0: Just for the yes, a question from the audience, Yeah, give us the difference between sponsor and non-sponsor.
1: Yeah, before jumping right into it. Yeah. Sponsors are those private equity firms that have raised funds. They may be on their first fund. They may be on their 15th fund. They may have a $200 million fund or a $5 billion fund. And they use that capital and their expertise to go out there and look for where they think the best opportunities for investment and growth are based on their expertise. So they might come in and look for a platform to grow a business from. So this is the anchor platform. They'll they'll bolt on other businesses of similar type. So they may come in and look for operational improvements in the company. They may just have a specific expertise in healthcare or technology and software. So there's a lot of different strategies out there. And that's why we think it's really important to understand the sponsor, understand their capabilities, understand the strategy and um, align with those sponsors that we really believe will support their transactions, and we really believe have a great acumen or great capability in that particular industry. In fact, we rate the sponsors and assess them that we work with. We work with over 200 sponsors out of the 700 in the US, and we assess them gold, silver, or bronze, and that's how we believe we will align with them in, in transacting opportunities. So it's great to have their ability to come alongside in transactions, the expertise they provide in the diligence process, the capital they provide, when things go sideways to support the transaction. Uh, so that's a lot of the positives from a sponsor perspective. To jump to the non-sponsor, that's where you don't have equity coming into the deal. You're working directly with the founder, you're directly working with the owners of the business, could be a family office. You're working to get to that transaction through debt advisors, you're working through commercial banks, you're working through accountants and attorneys and such. So again, there's not new private equity sponsor capital coming into the transaction in those cases.
0: I always I always learn the most on these deals. I just find that fascinating as a guy that, you know, I started this business and just in terms of us trying to find financing, you know, I mean, what you're doing is it's not only on the investment side, but just from the standpoint of as a business owner, you know, the fact that the banks have pulled back direct lending is uh, has become a really important source of funds for, you know, for a whole lot of businesses out there that are not, you know, General Motors, uh, you know, exactly. And I mean, when, when we talk about middle market lending, there's also a high yield component that we really haven't touched on. Do you see value there? And how has the spread compression been? I'm making an assumption that there's been spread compression. I assume that is. How has that spread compression lined up against public markets?
1: There has been some spread compression. And uh, we look at the uh, the asset class or middle market private high yield, as providing a lot of opportunity. And part of it is the pure yield benefit. Part of it's also the tremendous diversification benefit. So if you think about middle market high yield and think about the correlation to other asset classes, for instance, it's correlated about 0.3 maybe with investment-grade credit. It's correlated negative 0.3. I'm I'm using Cliffwater reference data back to 2004. Negative 0.3 with the ag, low correlations across the board. And then you think about the return risk profile Return from that period back to 2004 is over 9% annualized, which compares very well to U.S. equities at around 10%, but it has volatility or standard deviation about 4% compared to U.S. equities at 16%. If you look at the broadly syndicated leverage loan market, that return during that same time was 4% and volatility at 9%. So you're getting great sharp ratios, great ability to move out the efficient frontier. That diversification, just a great opportunity, we think, for investors, especially those investors that have longer investment horizons that don't need immediate liquidity that can provide stable sources of capital to this asset class. If you think about the current time and the valuation, think about what's happened with all the intervention from central banks, from fiscal policy, recovery of the economy, recovery of the markets. We saw the public high yield market and in the public broadly syndicated loan market, yields and broadly syndicated loans on the public side did move up relatively rapidly back last year in the second quarter, as everyone witnessed. The market was broken and liquidity dried up in what had been a liquid market. So those yields moved up to about 7.5%, whereas the middle market private high-yield market, first lien focus, was around seven and three quarters percent So public loans compressed, but there really was an inability to execute. Nobody could pick up that falling knife. You couldn't get many assets bought. But you could still transact in a private high-yield space, private middle market space. Now today, because of the intervention from central banks, You know, those public assets have fallen dramatically in risk premium that's been driven by the um, intervention from central banks that search for yield with negative yielding assets all around the world, negative real yields, negative nominal yields. So we're seeing now about a 275 basis point pickup in middle market high yield compared to public alternatives. So the yield might have been seven and three quarters last year in the second quarter. Now we're still talking about seven and a quarter average yield to down 50 basis points, whereas public assets public broadly syndicated loans are down around 400 basis points because of that intervention and um, the demand that comes through that.
0: So you you mentioned the unprecedented level of monetary and fiscal stimulus and its impact on spreads. What about the flows coming off of passive investing, which has been such a huge trend? Has that had a comparable effect as well?
1: That has. And in
0: part, that's driven
1: by the search for yield that has been, in part, impacted by central bank policy and, you know, you could argue excessive monetary accommodation, monetary policy accommodation. So that search for yield has come through passive ETFs, has come through passive mutual funds, passive mandates in general, in core and core plus, as well as credit mandates. So that, you know, my perspective is those investors are price takers rather than price makers. They're just executing it wherever the marginal bid is versus the offer. And so they're really not delineating what the true credit risk is. They're really potentially not even considering the economic conditions and uh, impact on true valuation or the true credit risk of an opportunity, let alone a broad index they're investing in. So we think that's pretty impactful because you can argue in equity that makes sense. You're getting exposure to the best companies that are growing the most considerably and attracting capital in a positive manner. Here, are those companies that are just the largest lenders are getting more and more access to capital. That's I lived through 2002, 2001. That's WorldCom. That's Enron. That's not where we think you want to put your capital from a fixed income investor looking for limited downside, but you know upside that middle market high yield can provide. And that's the great thing about middle market. It's so idiosyncratic. We consider the macro environment. We're focused on industries that are going to perform through secular changes and macroeconomic changes. But we're underwriting with so much rigor, every single loan as our peers, Uh, we're using expert advisors, we're um, doing diligence alongside with the private equity sponsors like we talked about. So again, we're a price maker, not a price taker. And I think that's something that investors should really consider when they're investing capital. So to me, the risk return profile is so much more attractive in middle market private high yield right now than it is in public markets in general, public credit sectors in particular.
0: I wanna get to liquidity which I think is always on the table when you're talking to insurance companies. But you touched on this a minute ago with regard to terms and covenants. How have you seen terms and covenants hold up through this most recent cycle here? Yeah, we, in our approach, in our uh, process, we always require true meaningful
1: covenants. So true maintenance covenants, no covenant light. We just won't do it. That's not our strategy. We don't think that's the best approach. And so we're always going to be looking for fixed charge coverage, debt deba-da tests, true maintenance tests, in addition to incurrence tests if there's any delayed draw facility. But if you look at what's going on in the market, if you kind of bifurcate and say, okay, the transactions, which are $100 and smaller in size and overall debt capital in the middle market space, this is the true direct lending, not the public space those transactions only have about 1% that are considered covenant light. So almost none that are considered covenant light. Again, that's where we're focused primarily. And then if you go a little bit into the core and upper middle market, so those transactions, hundred million to 500 million in size, about 10% of those are covenant light. So no financial transactions, but most of those are still with meaningful covenants, meaningful maintenance covenants. If you look at the public high yield space or the public leveraged loan space, over 80% or approximately 80% are covenant-like or in that range. And that's been growing and trending in that direction for some time because of the search for yield that need to be accommodated to, to borrowers and such. So again, you don't have the controls. You don't have the ability to get to the table with the borrower. You have higher leverage typically in those transactions as well. So though they may be larger, you have, we would argue, different risks and most likely in our perspective, oftentimes more risk from just a financial perspective in those business models. So that's where we see the value. Now, there is a lot of cash, a lot of flow coming into the middle market space, the private middle market space. So there's just a lot of our peers that are, are bringing a lot of capital. We're planning on bringing in a lot of capital as well. But we will never you know, give on that uh, true meaningful covenants. And typically, the cushion on those covenants are 25 to 35% above where they might close that fixed charge coverage at closing, that debt to EBITDA at closing. We know some peers are looking to invest capital so rapidly right now because the flows are so significant. So we do know especially in the upper middle market range where they're doing larger and larger transactions there is a give on the overall threshold you know how tight the covenant needs to be so effectively watering that down a little bit but still beneficial compared to what we see in the public markets
0: and there's obviously a, a liquidity give here versus public markets and i'm assuming that i'm getting some liquidity premium here can you talk about the comparison between the liquidity of these securities versus a public market and to what extent you're getting paid for that liquidity give?
1: Yeah, and we look at liquidity uh, in a little different way and we think investors should consider that as well. So for middle market direct lending, high yield, you should get paid for the credit risk, the liquidity premium, and then we believe there's an additional premium just for the inefficiency of the market because many investors don't have direct access to the market. You know, More and more, we'll be coming up with strategies that provide more ongoing liquidity, but for the most part, there's gates that are enclosed in funds that don't allow investors to have access to that capital. They may get income distributions, but they don't have access to the capital for you know, four years, potentially, or a window that gets into the reinvestment period. Also, gates oftentimes in just institutionally separate managed accounts. So we think that's really reasonable. And that's how credit should be managed. If you invest in credit, you should want to think about investing for the intermediate to the longer term. And so we think about liquidity in a sense of how stable is the capital that's supporting that investment and how stable is the capital broadly that's supporting that investment. So if you think about the public markets and think about liquidity, to us, liquidity is volatile in the public markets. So the premium you get in the private markets is just an exceptional opportunity from our perspective if you have an investment profile and rising that's intermediate to longer You have liabilities you're trying to back that are intermediate to longer or sticky, and you know what the duration of those liabilities are. So, what you want is a kind of a steady capital source. We have a growing capital source coming into the middle market space. You don't want the volatility that comes along with public markets, at least not for all your portfolio, because central bankers and systemic risk, geopolitical risk can affect liquidity overnight. And that's what sponsors and borrowers don't want that either. They want the certainty of financing. That's why they're coming more and more to the private market and moving away from the public market because they want that certainty. They want that relational lending. They want to know that the lender is going to be there through good times and bad, both in the market environment as well as when the credit goes sideways. So to us, that liquidity premium, if you've got the investment profile, meaning liabilities or an investment horizon, that this is appropriate. It provides diversification, downside protection. You don't get the swings that you get in the pricing and valuation you see in the public market. And that's justified, we believe. It should be a more steady valuation and it has proven to be over time.
0: And we have talked about this on a variety of our podcasts and in some of the articles that we publish, but the trend is for insurance companies is to alt and private asset classes because that's where the yield is and that's where the value is. And I have yet to find anybody who said that that won't persist, right? The question I have is, Will the value persist here relative to public credit? Do you think it holds up here? Can you just give us your view given the flows? It definitely
1: holds up. We believe it will be impacted over time because of those flows and the technicals causing it to to rich in a little bit relative to other alternatives. But we think it persists for a number of reasons. And uh, one of the reasons I haven't talked a lot about is the investment capital that's going into these companies is intentional through the private equity sponsors so it's capitalism at its finest these are industries and companies that are benefiting from secular trends taking costs out of the system creating efficiencies for the economy so that's always going to provide diversification and value in that sense from our perspective it's not the old industrial lines the heavy commodities the heavy manufacturing it's going to be the you know the industries and issuers that i've mentioned before that are benefiting from secular changes so that diversification is huge and really, really important. I think the other thing we didn't talk a lot about is the floating rate nature of this asset class, how it can buffer rising rates if you're concerned about rising rates. In addition, there's LIBOR floors on all of the loans that we're investing in. So typically a 1% LIBOR floor, no matter where LIBOR is at, less than 25 basis points. And then there's an original issue discount that's in these transactions we give additional benefit to the performance and the internal rate of return that we might expect So we do think it's a tremendous opportunity in that regard, that diversification. And again, we're talking about first lien loans here for the most part, first lien and unit tranche, which means just a broader first lien, as we spoke about earlier. Again, I mentioned earlier, this will always be a price maker market uh, rather than a price taker. I probably didn't coin this, but this can't be ETF. You can't just have a passive fund generated overnight that can invest directly into these assets, This is very idiosyncratic, very bottom up. It can't be replicated. Uh, you have to actually do the diligence and the work that goes into this decision-making process. And then ultimately find the best companies, put the best structure around them, and the value will take care of itself, we believe, on an idiosyncratic basis as well as the broader exposure to the middle market private high yield space. The other thing is we believe we're still at the very early stages of the capital flows coming into this market. So, you know, 10 years from now, there'll be less value in this market than there is today. But we haven't really cracked the code on how to provide this access more readily to retail and high net worth. So institutional investors that can get access directly through separately managed accounts, closed in funds, even interval funds to some extent for high net worth. You know, you're still at the early stages and that inefficiency of the market is still being explored. and, And I think that value is still going to be extracted in performance as we look down the road. And uh, then again, as, uh, just to repeat a little bit, but sponsors are always going to be willing to pay a little bit more for the certainty of financing and the certainty of the relationship, certainty to close on transactions as they grow a platform. So they're not that extremely sensitive to whether they pay 50 more basis points or 100 more basis points. They're more sensitive to the relationship and knowing that they could access to capital and not be reliant on a public market They can be a little bit whimsical in nature because of intervention and systemic risk.
0: I have learned a lot about Middle market direct lending. And I I appreciate that very much. I do have one additional question. Tim, this is during what you may not be aware of, which is the ask me anything portion. So I'm (laughs) gonna take you back to a time and day that I know you remember well. This is the day that you graduated from your undergraduate institution. Now, your last name starts with W, so you're at the bottom of the list. And you have to wait a long, long time, right? So finally, they call your name. Up the stairs, you go across the stage. You get the diploma from the president of the college. Quick photo op. The crowd's going crazy, Tim. I mean crazy. And then you walk (laughs) down the stairs, right? And you run into Tim Warwick today. What do you tell your 21-year-old self? Wow,
1: you made me feel young. Thank you for that. That was uh, awesome. Awesome reenactment. Yes, yeah, I tell myself that you know, be open to change, be open to evolution that you can have as a person, you know, entertain ideas from others, never be closed minded. So I think that's really been something that's suited me well at principal. I've had a number of different roles. To me, there, you can always be learning, um, not just book smart, but you always are learning from the market and your peers, colleagues. Market changes. Whoever would have thought that we'd see things we're seeing today in the economy, in the central bank policy, and then the opportunities we're seeing as well. So, the other thing I would say, you know, there's always opportunities, and uh, we're seeing those opportunities today, despite where things are compressed and, and such. There's always opportunities because you can always be looking forward for those secular changes, and that impacts you on a personal basis. Also, it can impact your clients, and that's what we're most focused on. How we can be positive impacts for our clients.
0: Great advice. Great advice. Tim Warwick, Principal Global Investors on Direct Middle Market Lending. Tim, thanks for being on. Thanks
1: a lot, Stuart. Really appreciate it.
0: Good stuff. Thanks for listening. If you have ideas for podcasts, please email us at podcast at insurance AUM Journal. I'm Stuart Foley, and this is the Insurance AUM Journal Podcast.